True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. Hey there, True Multifamily listeners. Justin here. Want to make sure you know about our website, truemultifamily.show, where you can stay all up to date, not only on this podcast, but all of our investment opportunities and other projects we have going on. Sign up for our newsletter at truemultifamily.show. See you there. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I'm your host, Justin Fraser, here today with my man, Randy Langenderfer. Randy, thanks for coming on the show. Justin, it's my pleasure. I really look forward to it. And uh, let's have some fun and provide some value to your listeners. Yep. I want to give a shout out real quick to Daisy for connecting us. Really appreciate that. Check out her show, um, Make It Rain podcast. Really great stuff going on over there. And uh, we've had Luke uh, on the show as well in the past. Check out that episode if you missed it. But Randy, um, you have to tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate, how you got to what you what you're doing now, and and let us give us give us a little more info on about you. Happy to do so. Uh, so I am currently located in uh, the Houston Houston Texas market. Uh, I came to Houston in 2013, and for business purposes, from the great state of Ohio, uh, in the Cleveland submarket specifically, and got. Introduced while in Cleveland with uh, uh, my brother-in-law who helped me become a hard money lender. Mm. We had been uh, associated with a group out of South Florida. We had done uh, 15, 20 different flips where we were the hard money lenders and got uh, very handsome returns, successful. Uh, Came to Houston, fourth largest metro area in the U.S. Got real excited about real estate. I was here for six months before my family moved and I attended every real estate investment meeting I could find. Wow. I had nothing else to do. And I came along, I came uh, identified and uh, got involved in Lifestyles Unlimited here in Houston, a big um, um, educational group. They really preached multifamily. I went to one of their expos and I heard a, a guy by the name of Brad Sumrock speak. And he's out of Dallas. And I sat there and just repeated because I was so enthralled. I went to every session and a lot of it was repeat, but I kind of a slow learner, so I wanted to hear it again. Uh, but basically from that time, I never turned back. I, I've uh, currently, fast forward to today, uh, I'm a GP, KP in about 250 doors. I'm in several thousand as an LP. I'm still a W-2 employee. Uh, I enjoy what I do on the, on the W-2 side and uh, continue to do that for at least a foreseeable future. I'm always gonna be an LP investor though. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I, whether I have a thousand or 10,000 GP doors, just because I like this asset class and uh, I've looked uh, by background, I'm a finance uh, accounting guy uh, and work for a large academic medical institution today. Um, But I just really like the asset class, Justin. That's awesome. Uh, I love that. So you said, did you move specifically from Ohio to Texas because of real estate? I did not. My W-2 job brought me down. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. I thought you said uh, that. Day jobs, as we call it. 
So the day job moves you to Texas, which obviously is a great state, you know, lots of very successful multifamily investors right now, lots of population growth, great state to be in. Um, you know, for me, not having roots in Texas, I feel like I, I'd love to be in Texas, but I feel like I maybe missed the boat on that. Um, but, you know, you got to play where you know, right? So yeah. so you're in Texas, you're in it, you're meeting Brad and going to these conferences and like just getting so enthralled with it. So how uh, you said you started as an LP. Um, how do you pick what kind of um, investments or, or what kind of GPs you're going to partner with? How do you decide, you know, where to put your money? A great question. You know, and as I, as your, as your audience, if there are new people listening to that. So I think the easiest one for me was to, to begin to join one of the large educational groups. Uh, at that time for me, it was the Sumrock group and I've been in three of them now. I'm currently in Rod Khalif's organization as a coach and, and really enjoy that. Uh, but at the time it was, it was Sumrock for me where you learn how to, uh, the intricacies of the deal. Um, the, the, what I would call the underwriting, I uh, am an analytical type. Mm-hmm. So I love the underwriting and the analysis portion of the deal making and follow up and actually property management. Uh, so I, I learned it there, but I think I wasn't there long. And then I just started, it's relationship as you know, Justin, right? Yeah, absolutely. People invest with those they know, like, and trust. Mm-hmm. So it's building relationships with people, uh, sponsors, uh, asking questions. I like to encourage my students to become what I call an active passive investor. Um, ask questions of the sponsors. And I say, if they don't return your phone calls or want to spend the time with you, then move on because there's plenty of other deals out there. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, man, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so when you first started going to these conferences, did you decide <clears throat> you wanted to do both, like you want to be active and do a GP or you wanted to dabble as an LP first? What, what was that thought process like? Yeah, like like a lot of people, I, I had a W-2 job. I aspire and still want to do much more on the GP side. Um, even today, that's where all my energy is focused okay. primarily. But at, at that time, um, with, because the W-2 job and relocating and all that, I, I really didn't want to jump into that right mm-hmm. away. Even though, you know, those groups will encourage you to, bypass the LP side and jump right into the GP side. But I really wanted to um, learn the process better and learn the communication style. So I, I became an LP so I could further the education. I thought it was Smart. a safer way to get in the biz. Sure. They say versus with, you know, from my day job terminology, less risk uh, and at least mitigated risk because I was relying upon that ecosystem that I was in at the time, or one of the other ecosystems, there are many out there, as you know, today, uh, for that basis. And so I, um, yeah, basically look for people from those ecosystems like that. I gravitate towards, uh, as an LP investor, when I'm looking, I gravitate towards, with all due respect, corporate people, people okay. that have a corporate background. I think it brings, that's just me, that doesn't make it right if you're not. But uh, I think it brings some rigor and some process and et cetera. Uh, so, so tell me about that a little bit. Do you mean that they just happen to have used to have some corporate experience? Or do you mean that they're running their syndication operation like a much larger corporation? And what does that even actually mean? Yeah, uh, great follow-up. So when I first started, I would say the first person I ever invested with was it was uh, a guy I knew who had a, he was in the same medical industry as I was. And he was um, a successful 
in the corporate world, true yep. corporate world. So that was an instant bond for me Got it. on the trust side. Uh, similar. You both spoke the same language and sort of understood that that background. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We spoke the same Latin. Yeah, knew the same people. Yeah. Um, and then we we did the first deal there, and uh, then it becomes you know expanding that to. There's a lot of people today I've invested with uh, as an LP, like you said, that are running their own syndication businesses. I think I hesitate now, and I will do a lot more due diligence if it's their first GP deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus their 10th or their 20th. Sure. Uh, and so it's that it's that aura of, for me, aura of professionalism and infrastructure. Are they doing it all in spreadsheets? Do they got a CRM? Do they have a, a investor portal? Uh, small little intangible elements. But yep. most of all, it's who you know, like, and trust. Absolutely. 100%. And all that other stuff is secondary. If you got your neighbor and you like him or your brother-in-law and you like him and you trust him, and he or she's got a deal, Go with your gut. So what you have not told me uh, in, in how you evaluate deals it, or people or sponsors is a specific rate of return, right? And so it, to me, and I'm sure that's important to your decision-making process, but not the most important is what I'm hearing you say. Is, it, is that fair? Well, that's true. And I think today, you know, it's all about risk. It's all about risk. I, I, I bring that from my corporate experience. That's what I do is uh, uh, risk on uh, compliance and privacy and IT security. So I, I look at it as uh, everybody's different. I, I encourage my students, again, to develop your own investment criteria. I, I, tell them, I tell them, put it on paper. So are you looking at a yield play? Are you looking at a value add play? Yep. They can be very different. Absolutely. And where you're at in your season of your career, I may be very interested in a yield play for just consistencies. If I'm I wanting to grow my business, I, I probably want the value add deal for the big buck um, yep. over the long term. So know your investors, uh, you know, then I, I look at the equity model, the capital stack uh, in the deal. As you know, you've seen one, you've seen one. Everybody's got their own little model. Yep. 80, 20, 70, 30. I've seen them as much as a 50-50 split. <coughs> yep. Uh, pref, yep. no pref, waterfall, no waterfall. Uh, these are all terminologies that your audience, uh, if they're not aware of, should, should begin to ask questions. And uh, so those are all important. As a as a rule of thumb, I would seek uh, I would seek about uh, you know a forty a fourteen or fifteen percent IRR with a cash on cash in the six to nine range year on year yep. and a total That's... return of one seventy five to one an equity multiplier of one point seven five to one point eight five over five years. Sure. Sure. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's you know, and every deal is going to be higher or lower. That's generally what we're pricing. You know, when we're underwriting deals and, and making an offer, that's generally what we try to hit. Is that fifteen IRR, and you know, maybe it'll be fourteen if you know. It yeah. Depends on on what, but that that makes sense. You know, and and for for those listening, if you're the operator and you're making deals like that's so important to know because I can go and you know make an offer on a property right now. Obviously. It's very competitive. We just found out yesterday that we missed out on two different deals that I toured last week, but I've got to model it out and I've got to model at least that 14 IRR for my investors. Otherwise, you know, it's, I'm, I'm already behind the ball. So I'm happy to miss out even by, you know, many millions of dollars. This is a very, very large portfolio we're looking at, but that's okay. Because at the end of the day, as asset manager, I have to then perform and hit those numbers. So I'm okay missing out until we find the right deal. And then, then it makes it more, 
I would say more in line with expectations when I try to manage it. I'm not managing from such a disadvantage of trying to hit an NOI that's just not possible, right? Yeah, I mean, that's where you have the investor mentality, Justin. Um, you know, and, and so how I, I encourage investors to think about how's the deal sponsor being compensated? Yeah. Uh, because that's a great incentive to you, to me, and to others. And there are, there are very different ones, right? There are, I break them down into uh, investor-friendly deals and sponsor-friendly deals. And that's not, either one's not bad, but a lot of sponsors take an acquisition fee, a capital refinance fee, a liquidation fee, asset management fee. And, and it's great if they've, got a, if they've got a good track record and they've done it for 10 years or five years or something and got a great track record. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and for those that are just getting started, I mean, I, I still have not made money from my first deal because of that. I had to give up those fees and everything else. You know, I syndicated a 41 unit, my first deal, first time out. And that's okay because I, I it was my first time and, you know, it was a small raise, 660 and I did it and that's fine. My investors get paid way long before I get paid. Um, but, you know, as you get more experience and more credibility and, you know, then you can start taking those fees and, and all that. So and it's, it's a long-term play for sure. And the other thing I would tell your investors is so um, out there, your audience is that, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the, I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday on another deal. And that instance where you're taking on the back end, I understand why you did and applaud that your, your uh, compensation will come on the back end versus on a monthly or annual basis. Yep. But I also prefer to see the sponsor getting paid during the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have to wait three, four, five years to get any compensation out of the deal, that's just human nature. And I'm going to, I'm going to say to the investors uh, out there, when you see that deal organized like that, it, you have to know, like, and trust again, you trust them because that's fine. And a lot of deals are going that way today, but a lot of, sponsors are out there if the deal starts to sour or become difficult uh, their eyes are on the next deal yep because that's where the transactional fees are going to be yep 100 it's like Versus, you, you have to you're right it's about the plan it's about who's doing it what their relationship is how they're going to run it absolutely 100 right there with you uh Randy, I'd like to transition to talk about uh, one of your GP deals, your true multifamily story, if you will, uh, because I, I know that you've got um, quite a story for us and, and, and some lessons that we can learn. So let's transition uh, into that, if you don't mind. Happy to do so. Um, so I think the story, uh, Justin, is the first, uh, the first general partnership deal I did or sponsorship deal I did was a property in Beaumont, Texas. For your audience, that's about 120 miles just due east of Houston, pretty okay. much on the Gulf. Uh, very, about a city of 225, small Texas city, uh, 225,000 people or so, <laughs> and heavily petrochemical based, but very blue collar, the kind we like to invest in. And uh, this is a little bit dated in that we, we bought the property in January of 2018. Hundred in the classic story of what all the mentorship groups would tell you not to buy, 139 units uh, built in 1965, chiller boilers and flat roofs. So why don't we want to buy those types of properties? So, I was going to say, let me pause right there so you're <laughs> the audience. One of my one of my mentors at the time said, "Randy, don't do it." 
why just like i said why chiller boilers really maintenance heavy really capital intensive just, yep. just don't do it run from it well and like every entrepreneur that's excited and wants to get started you know i'm going to be smarter and brighter than the next guy so i'm going to make sure. i can do it better than they can yeah, i'm fine i got that's play. everybody else that's not yeah. me yeah so me and a group of partners uh, jumped into this deal and we took it over in i think it was january of 2018 all excited. The the other lesson there is we had so lesson one is don't look at chiller boiler properties. Cautious on flat roofs. The second lesson is is we had a um, another property in the submarket and we used the same property management firm. They happened to own this property was called uh, I'll call it Longfellow Properties in Beaumont. The the on site and the firm property management firm for. Longfellow was also the property manager of another asset in Beaumont. And they had a rock star on-site property manager, true rock star. Long story there. So we retained the on-site and the company that was property management. Turned out to be a disaster. So lesson two for the listening audience is know the, know the property manager, not only the on-site, but the back house firm. Yes. And I'll get into that a little bit. So the story goes, um, we bought it in January of 18. We, we, you know, we do the transition. We got the transition with the property management. We got the checklist. We're doing all the right things. We're trying to establish a new culture. We notify all the tenants, uh, new sheriff in town, and we're going to be uh, family oriented, et cetera, et cetera. About second week in February, third week in February, I'm in my day office uh, and I get a call from the property manager says, uh, Randy, the building's on fire. Oh, no. I go, oh, that's a joke, isn't it? No, no, it's not, Randy. The building's on fire. And I hope that's a call that none of your listeners ever get. And, uh, but if you've been in the, if you do the multifamily long enough, you're going to have fires. You uh, have it. Fires, floods, hurricane, you get it all. Uh, you know, lawsuits, uh, yep. it, it, it's going to happen. But I just didn't think it was going to happen like in less than a month. Like your your second month of ownership. <laughs> that's uh that's a tough uh, first punch there. So the the good news is though is nobody was injured, and so another lesson for your listening audience: if you get that, I mean, you, you forget the financials, and you and it's about people, right? Was anybody harmed? And getting the tenants transition to temporary living, so. Uh, we were insightful enough to be encouraged to call American Red Cross. American Red Cross came out and they give tenants uh, a couple vouchers and stuff for food. And yeah. uh, key message point there, get American Red Cross involved. Have so, kind of a disaster. Great, great tip. Yeah. And then it's about, um, you know, after everybody's safe, after everybody's stabilized, then you start to worry about the assets. So we got into the, you know, construction. We've had a capital plan in place. So we had a construction manager. So now it's about the rebuild. Took out, I think, 24 units. Eight of them had to go down to the studs. Uh, wow. The other 16 just had to be like, um, you know, cleaned up and repainted and clean out all the uh, ventilation systems to get the smoke and dust smell out of there. Uh, but you got 24 units that are down. So one, it impacts your cash flow. Mm -hmm. Just, just. Fast forward, so we start the rebuild. That was in that was in February. Um, we're working through the rebuild. Uh, got tenants on, hired contractors. About that time, we realized that the current on-site manager is 
been there ever since the asset was built 25, 30 years ago. Wow. Wow. Working in a paper environment. And uh, she just was not getting support from the corporate office. Uh, so we decided to change uh, on-site property managers. And the company or the employee? Just the employee on-site. We kept, we kept what else I'll say, the property management firm, but we changed the on-site. Yep. Um, she was just had been there so long she couldn't start. Uh, she had relationships with all the tenants and was uncomfortable in raising rents. I think you get blind to it as well. Like at the site managers that have been there forever, you know, when you bring in someone with fresh eyes, it's motivated, like they see things that that, that manager has seen them for 20 plus years. They, you know, that building that's deteriorating or, you know, yeah, tenants that don't pay, whatever it is, they get blind to it. So having fresh eyes, uh, I always recommend. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and they just have a tolerance. They're, they're friends. I mean, it's, it's just yeah. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. So we changed the on-site property management. We hire a, a woman uh, that was really go-getter, but then we realized she had very little back office support from the property management company. And so we, uh, I became what I would say the regional property manager. Oh, look at you. <laughs> I got a lot of compensation for it. Nah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're working your full-time job as well. But wait for, for the ensuing, I would say for the ensuing five, four months through the through the rehab of the fire, I'm really in the bowels of this property with as the on-site, coaching the on-site on rent renewals, on maintenance requests. Oh wow. Property. I mean, she was getting no support. And so, as you would say, to protect our investors, I felt compelled to do this. Yeah, uh, I wanted to be able to look across the table at friends and relatives for Christmas and tell them they're <laughs> safe. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Versus getting the proverbial, uh, you're not invited anymore. So, uh, Randy, I it's always so much easier to look back and and say they weren't getting the support. Um, but when you were in it, like, did you realize they weren't? She wasn't getting the support from the back office from the company. Did you have conversations about maybe switching management companies? What just what is that process like and, and where, where was your head at during that time? So this was probably in the spring of 2018. And I would say when we started to feel uncomfortable. And so first we, we did the right thing. We contacted the owner of the property mm-hmm. management company, uh, the owner of the property management company. And we expressed our concerns, our dissatisfaction, the need for more. And uh, I would say she attempted to accommodate us. She brought in consultants and onsite people and, and uh, that proved to be counterproductive, quite honestly, uh, the people she brought in. And we came to the conclusion, you know, trying to work with her, trying to work with the firm, that they were really a property management company that focused on uh, homeowners associations, HOAs. They really only had our asset and the other asset I referenced as a multi-fit. They really just weren't built for it. Yeah. So then now we're coming towards the fall of the year and we're saying, do we really want to make an asset management change now? Uh, property management, I'm sorry, property management change now until uh, we get through this rebuild. We made the tough call as a group, as, as an ownership group to say, yes, we need to do this. Uh, we need to cut the strings. Um, we went out, identified three or five other companies. We talked to uh, our, co- our colleagues, uh, in the syndication world, our networking groups, uh, the, the um, 
big educational firms, who's, you know, who's in that market, who yeah. has experience, who has experience in a C plus, B minus deal that age. We sell it on a company um, called Oakleaf and I got to give them Oakleaf Management. I got to give them a shout out here. They were tremendous in the transition. Awesome. And so they then came on board in the fall of the year and we were we, we retained the same on-site manager that we had before that we had hired in the spring yep. and she was now supported by a true backhouse operation excellent you know, this is this is going to blow your mind Justin we started doing ACH um, rent deposits hey all right versus, versus manual checks for the office every first every month well listen some tenants can't do ACH. I get that. We we have more than I'd like to admit tenants that pay us, you know, cash money orders, um, maybe not cash, I guess, but money orders and checks and uh, some tenants in certain asset classes, you know, they can't do ACH. So you've got to do it. But and that's yeah, ACH exactly. would be awesome. <laughs> well, that and I, what, I hope I didn't come across as uh, saying that's not the only way to go. But, you know, like I'm going to say at that time, about 90, 90 to 95 percent of the rent every month was coming in checks yeah. Yeah. And so, um, anyhow, so the, the it's, it's one thing if you're not set up for it, or, and it's another thing if the tenants can only do it one, like they can only write you a check. We absolutely. Yeah. You want to be set up for as quick as we can take that money in. If they can ACH it to you. Absolutely. You want to be ready for that. If your management company is not able to take ACH, you, you got a problem for sure. Um, but good. Glad, glad to see got, got that in. Well, I'm just that's just a small indication. And if your audience doesn't know ACH is the alternative clearinghouse, it's the same thing as you do your uh, uh, your payroll checks with deposit yeah, ACH absolutely. employer. Uh, and that's generally the way you prefer to debit their accounts with the rent the first every month. But uh, so then winter sets in and it's a chiller boiler property. Oh, yeah. And you know, in Texas, I know you're in Jersey, but if it gets below 50 degrees, it's cold in Texas. Yeah, yeah, it's frigid, right? <laughs> so <laughs> people start to wear parkas. Um, but so then we had then we had cold weather and boiler problems. And so the boiler, for, for those that don't know, a boiler is an old-fashioned system that really provides uh, the boiler provides heat in the winter, and the chiller provides air conditioning in the summer. And it circulates hot and cold water, and there's a fan in each unit that blows over it, either blows hot air or cool air. Um, we were having problems with the boiler and, uh, for anybody that has a boiler property, you know, that the maintenance people around, because those systems are so old, the maintenance people are very difficult to find. Yep. And if you do find them, they're pretty pricey. Very expensive. They, uh, they have a skill set that is, uh, in need and dwindling, man, dwindling supply. So we, we, had a couple of nights where the temperature got low. And this is where as a human being, you really feel bad. Uh, I don't want to be a slumlord, right? I want to, no. I want to be a property owner. Uh, but I guess the, the good news is, is we were able, we only one day, one, two nights, I think, without heat. Uh, nobody got injured. We were able to restore, paid a lot of money for it. Uh, paid a lot of money for it, but it was worth every penny. Yeah. Uh, get that done. And then, um, uh, so that was in, uh, the winter of 18 and 19, uh, February ish, 19 or so we started hitting on all cylinders. We're doing 
$125 a month rent increases, making wow. no improvements at all. Wow. Or $150 or $175 a month that's, rent. Possibly. That's another symptom of having a property manager that's been there for 20 plus years, right? Is rents are just way too low. So, wow. Yeah. Good for you. That's great. What, what a great, great return. So we're hitting on all cylinders and we sold the property in the, in the fall of 2019 and we're able to return a, a 1.95 equity multiplier to our investors. And that's the, hey. the hard All right. So in, in two and a half years or so, three years. I was, it was not that I was counting, but 21 months. <laughs> First deal you're always counting, right? I know. Uh, hey, that's awesome. What a great return. Um, quick question. Would you buy another property with boiler chiller on it? Well, I would not. Okay. Well, I wouldn't say, I'll never say never. That's, that's, that's a bad way to say it. Yeah. I'll never say never, but I would do a lot more due diligence. And I've learned an awful lot about chiller boiler operations. Would the age have, of them, how yeah, old are have they we been have a property in Kentucky and um, we have a boiler and chiller. And like you said, you learn a lot and you learn some very expen- expensively you learn. Um, but we actually just went through, invested in CapEx about $400,000 and put mini splits in all the units. So now our boiler and chiller are offline. And so we've got heating and cooling through the mini splits uh, wow. because it's just not maintainable. It just does not. Ma- Same thing. Like you said, you're circulating the air with the fan, but then you got drips and you've got a maintenance issue. You got water in your unit. It's not efficient. It's very expensive to run. So yeah, we, we made the upfront investment because we're going to hold that asset for probably another 10 years or so. Um, and so we said, let's, let's go ahead, put the money in and put the mini splits in. Well, even if you, I don't know the property, Justin, but even if you didn't hold it for another 10 years, I got to believe that you added tremendous value to the next Absolutely. Our, immediately, like our utility costs have dropped and, and we're just, and the tenants pay electric there too. So instead of us paying to maintain the boilers and chillers, you know, that mini split is going on their electric and we were already, you know, mid range in the rent so they can handle the extra electric costs without having to move tenants out or anything. So yeah, it just really works out for us. And so you also see as your, if your investors, I mean, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no, I would say it's a red flag and ask a whole lot of questions, you know, yep. when was the last time they replaced, what's the maintenance history on them, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. You really got to get them checked out during due diligence. And then you see, I've seen a lot of properties that have boilers though for hot water heat. So don't be alarmed if it's just got a boiler system. Right. Um, there's a lot of properties that have just a boiler system for hot water, the showers, the dishwashers and stuff like that. And a boiler is, as you know, now a boiler is a whole lot less expensive to replace than a chiller. Yes. Uh, Yes. A boiler is more manageable and it actually is an efficient way to provide hot water to the units. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And and it's a rubs opportunity for your bill back opportunity to the tenants. 100%. Yeah. Well, Randy, this has been great. Really, really good info. I love um, what we got into here. We're pushing towards the end of the show. Um, I would love for you if you could tell our audience where they can find out more about you, about what what you have going on and and any upcoming opportunities. Thanks, Justin. I I, I regret I don't have an exact opportunity in front of uh, everybody today, but uh, like yourself, I'm out underwriting deals, uh, an awful lot of them and submitting LOIs and trying to find one. But uh, that aside, I would enjoy immensely talking to invest, real estate investors and happy to assist them however I can. And the easiest way to find me is go to the webpage, invest-arc, A-R-K, invest-arc.com. That's invest-arc.com and uh, the contact us page there. And 
would love to chat with you at your convenience. All of Randy's info, links, social uh, are all going to be on our website, truemultifamily.show. If you missed that link, um, he'll be up there, truemultifamily.show. Definitely check out Randy's page there with this episode and, and all of his links and the show notes there as well. And if you like this episode, I would love personally if you gave us a rating and review so that we can hear more from you guys. And uh, if you have a true multifamily story, I would love for you to come on and share your story with us as well. Now, Randy, our final question before we leave. Uh, someone approaches you, our audience, they're multifamily investors. They're looking to scale up. They say, Randy, I want to get into multifamily investing. What is your true multifamily tip for them? Act. Um, <laughs> uh, so I said, uh, just a quick summary. I'm, I told you I'm a finance guy. I'm an analysis. And so you may have heard the illustration of ready, aim, fire. Um, you're ready, you aim, and then you fire. And so as a, as a risk adverse guy, I ready, aim, 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 and then fire. That's my weak spot. I know that, but I've gotten over it. And, and you don't want to partner with somebody that fire aims ready. Uh, somebody that just goes out and writes LOIs and I'll figure it out on the back end. So as your investors act, uh, educate yourself, uh, get involved. I'm sure, uh, Justin, you spend a lot of time with your investors as well. And absolutely happy to do that. So, um, I love it. I, I agree hundred percent. You got to act. You have to, you, if you get stuck in that analysis mode, you know, you have to, you have to be prepared and, and understand what you're getting into, but at the end of the day, you've, you've got to make a move and, and get started. So Randy, this won't regret been, it. no, right. Um, this has been excellent. Love chatting with you. I hope you'll come back on the show again and, and share some more stories with us. It's been a lot of fun. Love to Justin. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks guys. Thanks Randy. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community, and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily. I'm really, really proud to have the show produced by our company, On Air Brands. Check us out at onairbrands.com. We also have an incredible, unique podcasting event that we would love for you to be a part of. Check that out at podmax.co.